Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Study Room Podcast, where we bring you just one topic of revision every week, or more likely every day, because today we're going to be studying politics, uh, paper two, cover- covering all the oceans, uh, constitution, devolution, and parliamentation. Uh, okay, jumping right in, the constitution. What is a constitution? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. A system of rules and laws that define the way in which a country is organized and governed. It can be codified and uncodified, written or unwritten. Uh, defines the relationship between different institutions of the state and the, reflu- uh, the relationship between state and the people, like civil rights. It also defines the relationship between national, subnational, and supranational institutions, like the, e- uh, the EU and the UK, and devolved groups. What are the main features of the UK constitution? Well, constitutional monarchy. Uh, stated by the Magna Carta, the Act of Settlement, and the Bill of Rights, uh, in which the Parliament has a say over the line of succession, Uh, no one is above the law, and individual rights must be protected, uh, and people should know why they're in prison. Uh, Parliamentary sovereignty and rule of law. Well, everyone is equal under the law. Uh, A.V. Dicey wrote a big book about this. Uh, And Parliament is a supreme body. Uh, It is part written, mainly uh, Magna Carta and Badger Hawk. uh, can wrote stuff down. Um, and, sorry, Badger Hawk, Badger Hawk, I, I, I wrote Badger Hawk as a joke in my notes, and I said that out loud. Okay, uh, it is pragmatic, evolutionary, organic, and conservative, um, so it is unentrenched. Um, it is also flexible because it is uncodified and unentrenched. Uh, sources of the UK Constitution, statute law, all legislation is created by Parliament, uh, be- becomes statute law. Common law, which are customs and judicial precedent. EU law, which is laws that the UK is to follow, which are made by the EU. Conventions, which are customs, practices that are accepted as ways of doing things. Works of authority, so books or guides uh, to the working of the Constitution. Namely, A.V. Dicey and Badgerhart uh, wrote extensively on this. Uh, main constitutional principles, parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. Constitutional developments since 1997. Um, so, there's the 1998 Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, the Government of Wales 2006 Act, Welsh Devolution Referendum in 2011, Scotland Act of 2016, and the Wales Act of 2017, all uh, beginning of real devolution. But the main question to keep in your mind, is this a springboard to separatism or enhancing the Union? Well, I'll let you mellow over that. Human Rights Act of 1998, bringing the EU Convention on Human Rights under the UK jurisdiction, no longer need to take a flight all the way to Belgium to get uh, uh, you know, appeal for your human rights. Actually, it is based in Strasbourg, so taking a flight to Strasbourg instead. Um, referendum 1997, 1998, 2004, well, you know, they use referendums. Uh, electoral systems 1998, devolved assemblies and parliaments, London Mayor, uh, House of Lords 1999, removed all but 92 hereditary pairs, appointment, uh, and it's going to become an appointed chamber instead. What are the advantages of a written constitution? Well, it's a better degree of a better guarantee of rights and liberties because they are um, entrenched. That we, we, we know that they're there. We can always say, like, hey, I don't think what you're doing kind of corresponds to what's written down. Uh, greater power for the judiciary, yes, because they can uh, uh, apply things directly based off of the Constitution um, going against the government if they go against that. And reassert and strengthen the separation of powers. Um, yes, we see this in the U.S. with the separation of powers. UK Constitution may be too flexible because, again, there's so many laws in place that um, you know we, we don't really apply today. Like, you can't wear an absurd ruffle anywhere 
uh, in the uh, vicinity of the queen or, um, you know, rug out the carpet, uh, dirty carpet in public. But these laws we don't apply anymore, even though they're still technically in the law. Modernize the constitution. Uh, same point as what I just said. Tidy up the constitution. Again, too many laws. Nobody really knows what's going on. Um, advantages of an uncodified constitution. It's flexible. It's pragmatic. It's uh, parliamentary sovereignty. Power in the hands of elected politicians, not unelected, unrepresentative, and unaccountable judges. Yes, it takes away powers from the judges to the um, quote-unquote people. Uh, written constitution is unachievable and unnecessary. Yes, I mean, seriously, like, how long is it going to take to write all of this down? Someone has to, you know, read every single law ever written. Uh, written constitutions are no guarantee of civil liberties. Yes, because things change. We don't know what's... Uh, what what can happen? We see this in the U.S. like um, you know the, the uh, you know right to bear arms, and it's you know now 2021, and is this really applicable? Well, no. Uh, okay, so I am going to run you guys through a possible essay uh, on constitutional reform, which I think kind of like goes well uh, in touching all the points that we need to know, including facts and details, and it touches a bit on devolution. So the essay title is Constitutional Reforms Have Not Gone Far Enough Since 1997. So, in 1997, Blair was in power and his landslide victory should have allowed him uh, to follow through on reforms. However, many uh, Lib Dems and Labour people felt uh, that these were not realized. Reforms since 1997 made the constitutional fairer and more democratic, but also created uncertainty around devolved relationships and the EU. Further clarification is needed. Uh, and hence more reform. So, in which ways did it not go far enough in terms of human rights? Well, in 1998, the Human Rights Act aimed to enshrine the European um, Convention on Human Rights into UK law, which makes it easier to access for UK citizens, greater clarity around their civil rights. Uh, it's, but, however, it's only an advisory legislation. It can be suspended in emergencies, as we saw in the 2004 Belmarsh case, where the UK appellate court ruled that foreign prisoners uh, held at Belmarsh Prison was in contravention of the ECHR, the European Convention of Human Rights. But they were only able to declare uh, incompatibility with the law because uh, they can't uh, undermine parliamentary sovereignty. So as we see, you have this written down, but it does allow parliament to go around it. So, you know, like, does this really help our human rights? Well, no. Um, Tory politicians argue that the Human Rights Act gives the EU too much power because we are taking um, the, because we're applying what the uh, EU states to be Canada general human rights and applying it to our law. Since 2010, um, there have been attempts to replace the Human Rights Act with the British Bill of Rights, um, but this hasn't yet taken place. Weaknesses of Human Rights Act uh, suggest that human rights have somewhat been protected by um, constitutional reforms, but ha ha these haven't actually gone far enough. Despite this, kind of like a counterpoint, a separate paragraph, despite this, since 1997, there have been positive changes to human rights. The 2013 Marriages Act, uh, it, it's a benefit of the uncodified constitution, and this led to same-sex marriage in the UK. The Freedom of Information Act, 1997, uh, was promised in the Labour Manifesto and was enacted in um, 2000. And requests uh, to access information. And in its first year of use, 120,000 requests were made. Uh, important information has been unearthed, like the 2009 expenses scandal, uh, hence holding MPs to account. However, 
The act has been criticized as being toothless and watered down because of the long list of exemptions and the existence of ministerial veto undermining the citizens' uh, protection of rights. Dis uh, despite there being some legislation since 1997, constitutional reform aiming to protect human rights hasn't gone far enough. So again, uh, answering the question of in which case it hasn't gone far enough. Um, speaking of that, how has it not gone far enough um, in, in terms of safeguarding democracy and fair representation? Well, the 1999 House of Lords Reform Act um, w w was promising reform to the unelected chamber, but it failed to go as far as many Labour and Lib Dems had hoped. Uh, they've reduced the number of pairs to 669 and the uh, limit to hereditary pairs to 92. This seemed to be a watered down of reforms promised by Blair. 2011 Fixed Term Parliaments Act intended to safeguard democracy, uh, introduced by the Lib Dems, and, and uh, introduced a set date of five years for an election. But this has been criticized as keeping unpopular minor minority governments in Parliament uh, if they, uh, while they have limited support of the public. In 2017, uh, two-thirds of the Theresa May government uh, majority uh, held in a general election, circumventing the Fixed Term Parliaments Act uh, by just saying, by just passing a, a a bill saying, hey, we want an election. Uh, and this suggests that the law is not fulfilling its intended safeguarding and uh, of regular elections. However, some successful elements of constitutional reform improve representation and democracy. Uh, introduce, so this is again, second little, second little paragraph to this. The introduction of e-petitions, uh, 10,000 signatures uh, grants you a res response from the government. 100,000 signatures uh, means they consider it for debate. Um, the House of Lords reform may have not gone far enough, but in increased... Sorry, uh, back to the first point. Uh, this increases interaction of people with the parliamentary process. Um, next point. Uh, the House of Lords reform may have not gone far enough, but increased diversity. Uh, so it might have been a step in the right direction. Um, and change rules to royal succession in 2013 uh, did not reduce the role of the monarchy, but it did remove gender discrimination against female heirs. Uh, not heirs, heirs, sorry. Uh, increased number of referendums can imply that democracy is stronger, like the 2014 Scottish independence, AV referendum in 2011, and the Brexit referendum in 2016. However, poor turnout in these referendums um, can undermine this, like 42% for the AV referendum in 2011. Gina Miller case, um, that Brexit referendums uh, is constitutional implications, may undermine parliamentary sovereignty. So there is kind of like, uh, uh, not a lot, you know, there's a counter support or whatever you call it, you know, counter revolutionaries, uh, you know, the, the people who are against it, uh, who say, yeah, it, it undermines <laughs> parliamentary sovereignty. Um, while some positive changes have been made to improve democracy, further change is needed. So again, linking back to the question. Okay, and the last uh, kind of main point is some would argue that not only has reform gone far enough, but that in some cases devolution, uh, like devolution, it has gone too far. Piecemeal devolution may be a springboard to separatism rather than enhancing the union. Um, so examples of this is the rise of the Scottish National Party, who now have a majority in the Scottish Parliament, um, took most of the Scottish Labour seats in the House of Commons. The independence referendum of 2014 and Indy Ref 2 show that separa uh, separatism is growing in Scotland. 
And the COVID-19 pandemic showed that devolved bodies do not work in harmony. Uh, again, different lockdown rules in different places. Nationalism in Wales. The assembly was renamed to the Welsh Parliament in 2020. Uh, Wales Act of 2017. Scotland Act of 2017. Um, uh, led to friction with English MPs. Um, and kind of, you know, brought back up the West Lothian question of should Scottish uh, MPs and, and Welsh MPs vote on things that don't actually affect uh, their kind of country. Um, and this led to the introduction of EVEL, evil, uh, English votes for English laws. Um, it failed the materialization of further devolution plans for, uh, so, sorry, Separate point is the failed materialization of further devolution plans for cities, which John Prescott in the early 2000s uh, kind of campaigned for. Um, the Greater London Assembly uh, and relationships between city and district councils are extremely complicated. Uh, again, I'm not exactly sure what the London Assembly is, what their role is, so that's a testament to that. Um, and Article 50 just made this all a lot more confusing. Uh, so this led to IndyRef 2. Uh, to the proposal of IndyRef2 and questions about Northern Ireland uh, and their possible independence because of the Good Friday Agreement uh, contradictions. Uh, confusion of roles, powers, and the future of uh, devolved bodies in the UK uh, means that many argue that, too, that they, it is too far reformed or perhaps not successfully implemented. And conclusion for this question of have reforms not gotten far enough, a large number of reforms since 1997, but have not always been successful or gone far enough. Human rights protected by legislation in the EU, but this was complicated by Brexit. Reforms to enhance democracy and increase referendums and devolution um, resulted in outcomes that complicated the f uh, complicated further the you know the constitutional matter. Uh, and until clear legislation is introduced that defines our human rights inter- and intra-governmental relations and democratic protocols, constitutional reform will not have gone far enough. Uh, so again, that was just kind of glancing over an essay that covers most topics of the Constitution and uh, throwing in some devolution in that. So in a sense, constitutional reforms, as we can see, aren't uh, greatly kind of implemented well or, or effective because there's always pros and cons towards them. Uh, it's quite a complicated issue. Speaking of complicated issues, we're just going to uh, glaze over devolution because I know it is not in our um, uh, kind of little test uh, on Monday because they, they took it out because of uh, COVID and stuff like that. But it will be in next year. So when you listen to this next year, you'll be thankful. Uh, devolution. Uh, what is devolution? Well, it's a grant of power by an upper level of government to a lower one. Um, and devolution is a, delegated, a delegation of political powers from central government to regional government. In his book, Devolution, V. Bogardo claims that, uh, sorry, V. Bogador uh, claims that devolution has three parts to it. Transfer of power to a subordinate elected body, the transfer of power on a geographical basis, and the transfer uh, of functions at present exercised by, uh, by parliament. So there's three uh, differences. So there's differences between devolution and federal uh, federalism. Devolution transfers... Uh, is the transfer of political decision-making, centralization of political power, but powers can be removed by central authority, e.g. the imposition of unitary powers when the center demands it. For example, the suspension of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Again, we can give you devolution, but we can also take it away. Um, federalism is a political union of separate states. Each state retains a degree of autonomy, powers of states guaranteed by a codified constitution, 
Each level of government within a federal system has its own core institutions, the examples being the USA, Canada, Australia, and Belgium. Um, okay, so Scotland, big complicated thing. Um, yes, I re can recommend you guys read up on this uh, by yourselves. Um, go over your notes for it. Because um, mainly it's, you know, like, oh, you know, we want to be Scottish. Uh, we've been given some devolved powers to kind of appease us. And we basically have the power of any other country, um, such as... Um, you know, uh, imposing uh, tax rates uh, and, and, and things like that. Um, yes. So anyway, SMP, big, big deal. Good Friday agreement was because everything was complicated. And um, okay, so let's talk a tiny bit about devolution in Scotland. The Scottish Parliament has 129 members. Scottish Parliament selected using the additional member system, which if you covered the topic uh, of paper one, you will see that that is a good system to use because it's hybrid. Balance of first-past-the-post and additional members is 73 for first-past-the-post and 56 additional members. Elections are held every five years since 2011, but this used to be every four years. Until 2007, the Scottish government was known as the Scottish Executive. Uh, the original Scotland Act that devolved powers such as law, order, health, education, transport, environment, and economic development was passed in 1998. Okay, furthermore... The original act, unlike Wells, gave Scottish Parliament tax-varying powers. It was able to raise or lower income tax by 3%. 3% they can raise or lower income tax. You know, pepper into that, into an exam, to get some uh, marks for analysis. Uh, 2012 Scotland Act, this power was increased. Uh, so from 2016, they could set a Scottish tax rate of income tax higher or lower than that of the rest of the UK. Um, and the same 2016 Scotland Act, um, it went even further, saying that income tax bans and rates are controlled by Scotland, and 50% of all VAT revenue raised in Scotland goes to the Scottish Parliament. So again, basically their own country. Uh, why could they want to be devolved even more? Well, okay. Uh, in total, this means that the Scottish Parliament is now working with £15 billion. Pounds. Um, the original Scotland Act created reserve powers. These are powers that remain solely in the hands of Westminster. To get around the issue of parliamentary sovereignty, the Scotland Act stated that Westminster had chosen to exercise its sovereignty by devolving legislative responsibility without devolving its own powers. 2016 Scotland Act also challenged the Westminster theory, technically, they could abolish all devolved institutions by stating that the Scottish Parliament and government cannot be abolished unless approved by a referendum. So again, that's the only way that they can uh, kind of re remove power from themselves. Uh, which party took office in 2007? Well, this is the SNP, who have uh, now in a majority. The Labour government's commission on further Scottish devolution was called the Kalman Commission. What was put firmly on the agenda by the landslide victory in 2011? Well, Scottish separatism. Um, okay. Yes, no to Scottish independence. Um, yeah. So, yes, decisions about Scotland are best made by the people who live there. Scotland can successfully be a country in its own right. Independent Scotland would make decisions that reflect Scottish priorities. Independence would be a declaration of confidence in ourselves and in our nation. Scotland could set its own welfare priorities. Um, and, yeah, Scotland could get rid of Trident. Uh, they would not get dragged into illegal wars, such as Iraq. Uh, North Sea oil reserves would be put into good use. Scotland would adopt a different immigration policy, and Scotland will continue to have good relationships with England, Wales, and Northern Ireland on a more equal basis. Arguments for no. 
The UK's successful union dating back 300 years, being part of the UK, offers more economic security. I'm guessing this, these notes were written before Brexit. Uh, jobs could be lost. Major projects could be frozen. Prices could, in, could rise. Scotland benefits from UK research funding. No one knows what currency Scotland would use. Bit of a stupid point. You know, they can uh, issue their own currency because there is a Bank of Scotland. Uh, Scotland would have less influence in the world. Okay. Uh, the BBC should not put... Um, should not be put at risk. Okay. Uh, security is better handled on a UK-wide basis. Um, are the points of no. Okay. Uh, I believe that that covers us for Constitution and uh, Devolution. And next, uh, we're going to be talking about Parliament. The uh, groovy thing, which is Parliament. Uh, and if I can find my notes on that. Uh, just a second. Okay. Parliament. The main question to keep in your mind when uh, covering Parliament is Parliament simply a rubber stamp? Um, good point. L legitimization. Uh, so, okay, so first let's talk about the functions of Parliament. Legitimization being one. It provides credibility to what the executive is doing. And, um, yeah, and, yeah, and all that the government can do is propose. Yeah. Uh, scrutiny, to inspect, ask, question about, and aggressively analyze. Representation, it represents constituency, party, country, and individual self. Um, so this, again, this is also what uh, individual MPs represent, is CCCP, not the Soviet Union, but constituency, country, um, sorry, CCCP, constituency, country, another C, and party, uh, conscience, that's it, constituency, country, conscience, and party. Uh, it took me a while uh, to remember that, but you guys can, you know, I don't know, skip over uh, in retrospect when you listen to this again. Uh, recruitment is another function. Government ministers must be from uh, House of Commons or House of Lords. Parliament is a base for recruiting um, members. Lawmaking, does Parliament create laws or just talk about them? Good point. Debate, um, adjournment debates each day for half an hour. Emergency debates can also be raised with approval of the speaker slash MP, and lots of them are poorly attended. Um, jumping back to the point of representation, there's a good quote that you might want to uh, throw in by Disraeli. Damn your principle, stick to your party. Uh, let's keep in mind, this man is a conservative, so that makes lots of sense. Um, Okay, next question to keep in the back of your minds while you read this. Is Parliament policy making or simply influencing? Well, what is the composition of Parliament and what are its main features? So there's 650 MPs for each of the 650, uh, 650 constituencies. Um, yep, there's a majority conservative at the moment. Um, and, you know, it's slightly about 150 less labor. And the rest are kind of like, you know, chilling around uh, lower than that. Okay. So, they have an adversarial seating arrangement. Uh, this means, again, um, it, it, I guess, in, in a sense, it improves scrutiny because you're directly looking at the other people and it opens conversation, in a sense. Uh, the role of the speaker. Well, what is the role of the speaker? He is nonpartisan, or she is nonpartisan. Denison's Law. Deciding votes should be in favor of more debate. Uh, in, in general elections, they stand unopposed. Um, and yes, 
uh, or yeah, with the deciding vote, um, either in favor of more debate or in favor of the status quo. Um, what is the role of the whips? Well, they make sure a maximum number of party members vote and the vote uh, along party lines in the ways that the party parties want. The term uh, kind of whip comes from when they had memos sent out to all the uh, MPs. The kind of the, the whip people before they were named the whips would like underline it three times, or what was called a three-line whip, based off of which uh, kind of debates and meetings uh, they should attend and vote on along the party line. Um, they are um, so there's tellers uh, and a pairing system in which if one person from the other party is ill or unable to to make a vote. Um, then the whip of the, the party says, okay, we'll remove one member so that it's still roughly kind of equal. Um, and yes, they, they work as the usual channels of organization. Procedure. So this is all about how things get passed in Parliament. Yes, interesting stuff. <laughs> Try to stick away, stay awake, people. Don't worry, I'm, uh, I've got lots of coffee in my hands. So public bills. Uh, there's roughly about 25 to 35 bills per session. Uh, there's a kind of rough process of debate, scrutiny, and amendment. So, um, draft bills can be published and scrutinized by select committee or joint committees, um, but usually they uh, are kind of proposed by government. So, um, public bills occupy 90% of the time and mostly relate to manifesto commitments. First off, there's the green paper, which sets out for discussion proposals which are still at a formative stage. Next, the white paper, um, which is issued by government as statements of policy. Some white papers may invite comment. Then there's the first reading, which is a formal presentation of a bill. No debate, no vote. Second reading, first opportunity to debate the, the bill. On the second reading, governments uh, have... Uh, so on, on second readings, uh, government has only been defeated two times since 1945. So I'll repeat this fact because it might be handy. Um, in the second reading, governments have only been defeated twice since 1945. Okay. Um, so again, is it a rubber stamp? Uh -huh. Possibly, possibly. Uh, commitment stage or the standing committees. Sorry, committee stage or the standing committees. Uh, new committees are set up after second bill is passed, about 16 to 50 members, and this is detailed scrutiny. They, it, it, and um, the standing committees are kind of a microcosm of the House of Commons. They have a, a rough, rough makeup of the kind of proportions of parties um, that are in the, the Commons. And um, a fun kind of fact to, to throw in in your essays at committee stage, Sarah Champion, who was an who was uh, kind of an opposition MP managed to get amendment amendments agreed, uh, which is kind of a rare thing. So maybe throw that in somewhere. Uh, report stage is the next stage. Um, there's a debate, a debate, but no vote. All MPs can talk in this, um, and in in which uh, an example is John Major in 1993 uh, lost. Um, the Maastricht Treaty. Um, I, yeah, I don't exactly know what I meant when I wrote that, but yes. Um, EVEL, evil, or English Votes for English Laws, as we uh, mentioned earlier, uh, is 
introduced a, a new procedure after the report stage. Yes. Okay. Uh, moving next up, we are going to the third reading. Um, so, at the third reading, it's a chance for comms to debate contents of a bill. Finally, my god, we've made it to the third reading. We can debate. After Tony Blair took office, it took six years for him to lose a bill. Again, repeat yourself the question. Is it a rubber stamp? Uh, is it really a question? Um, okay. <laughs> Same stages are repeated at the House of Lords. House of Commons can amend, accept, or reject House of Lords amendments. House of Commons and House of Lords can accept bills. Governments can drop bills uh, and invoke slash, um, sorry, invoke Parliament Act. Okay, um, private member bills. What are private member bills? Well, uh, a bill introduced by a private member. Whoa, that's a shock. Um, occupy approximately 10% of parliamentary time. Ballot bills. Uh, for each parliamentary session, 20 names of MPs um, who want to introduce a bill are drawn in a ballot. Allocated time on 13 Fridays during the sessions. 10-minute rule. MPs have 10 minutes to make a speech to introduce a bill. Uh, and then there's presentation, where it's, uh, any member can introduce a bill as a presentation upon speaker uh, approval, um, as long as their PowerPoints are nice and colorful. Uh, <laughs> note that private member bills usually fail. Uh, mechanisms of scrutiny. Yes, this is good. This is good stuff. Um, I've had <laughs> way too much coffee today. Mechanism of scrutiny, uh, additional change, structural change. PMQs. Uh, it was on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but now it's only on Wednesdays, uh, and it's 40 minutes long, and it has been, um, criticized as being ritual theater. Yes. Uh, why? Because if you've ever watched a PMQ, you will notice that it is a ritual theater. Uh, however, Jeremy Corbyn uh, attempted to change this and asked uh, British people to send questions to be asked during PMQs to make it slightly more meaningful than, you know, will the right honourable doofus of the other side uh, please answer to this. You know, the usual narrischkeit um, that happens um, in the uh, courts. Okay. Uh, ministers, question time. Well, um, yeah, they so this happens, so they, they um, ask questions to different ministers, but they know the questions in advance, um, so it is flawed in the sense. Opposition days, 20 days a year that are given to an opposition, uh, and the opposition's at schedule, and 17 days go to the official opposition, uh, and yes. What are departmental select committees? Uh, again, wow, I'm really glad you guys asked. Uh, DSCs were introduced in 1979 and are cross-party groups of MPs to scrutinize government departments. 19 DSCs, 11 to 15 uh, to 14 members each, again, microcosm of House of Commons seats. They sit for extended periods of time. Uh, preemptive scrutiny could be the case, so that departments are like, uh, you know, like, hey man, I don't think we should do this, because, you know, like, they're going to scrutinize us. Um, yeah, and 44% of recommendations go into legislation. So again, we can see that scrutiny might be effective. I'm just going to repeat that fact because I will remember to put it into an essay. 44% of recommendations go into legislation. Yes. Okay. PAC and NAO. Uh, what are PACs and NAOs? Well, um, PAC and NAO um, is where I had dinner last night. Um, no, but it's the Public Accounts Committee. 
Uh, Public Accounts Committee, check that departments are using public money effectively. And the National Audit Office are non-governmental and part of the civil service. And these two work together to see that everything is running smoothly in terms of spending. Um, as we can see with the MPs um, spending scandal, they are spending smoothly. Okay. Uh, backbench Business Committees, BBCs. Uh, diverts power of party and usual channels. Uh, its control is scheduled one day a week. They have 35 days per session. Comes into existence after the 2010 Right Committee. This Right Committee does sound like the Right Committee because they actually have done some quite cool things to kind of like uh, improve scrutiny and stuff. Um, so the Backbench Business Committee is also known as the Reform of the House of Commons Committee. Uh, and they call into account the House of Commons, scrutiny, responsibility for acting on behalf of bank ventures. Um, yes, there's also the Liaison Committee, which is the chair of every select committee, um, meet with the PM twice a year. So every, again, every select committee, the chairs of them meet with the Prime Minister every year. And uh, again, the Backbench Business Committee are made up of Backbench MPs and hence kind of undermines uh, the role of the whips. Uh, factors undermining scrutiny of parliament. Um, okay, power of the party. Two-party system might undermine legitimacy. Short. Uh, sh trying to read my own handwriting. It looks like short Moody P, but I don't know what that means. So uh, we're gonna a uh, short money possibly. Um, opposition party have limited power to set agenda. Weak scrutiny because the BMQ uh, is a kind of a ritual theater. Government ability to reject standing bill committee uh, is another point. Centralization of executive power. Um, the executive have quite a uh, strong power in parliament, as we saw with Tony Blair, because it took six years for him to actually be defeated, defeated on any bill. Size and secrecy of government, uh, if they're very big and very secret, uh, you know, scrutiny is a bit less effective because again the media can't have a role in that and parliamentary arithmetic which is a good word to use means that they can pass bills through again use Tony Blair as an example EU membership uh, EU directives must be followed yes this undermines uh, scrutiny because as we know uh, decisions made by the EU um, are kind of under undermine parliamentary sovereignty um, Yes, and uh, because the EU is, um, take, you know, we, we take a lot of our directive, well, we used to take a lot of our directives directly from uh, the Euro Group and Troika and, um, what's his name, the, the Wolfgang Schäuble of the uh, Bundesbank, who, you know, set economic imperatives. So, yeah, EU, uh, democratic deficit in there. Uh, actually, uh, it does not have a democratic deficit because we don't talk about the moon as having a oxygen deficit. Okay, quangos. Uh, what is a quango? Well, again, not what I had as a side to my dinner last night, but it is a quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organization. Love the word quango. Put it on a t-shirt, put it on stuff. Man, like, sell it. Uh, quasi-autonomous, non-governmental organization, non-departmental public bodies like Ofsted, Watchdog, the National Gallery, etc. In 2010, there were 722 quangos. Um, if you have a net large enough, you might be able to catch them all. Uh, financial control rests with the executive. They have the power of the purse. P 
Parliamentary Act of 1911 uh, and Opposition Resources um, and the Barnett Formula. Again, Google a couple of these stuff uh, just to so have a better understanding of what I'm talking about uh, because I don't quite. Uh, possible reforms. Well, fixed timetable for bills. Bills take too long to pass and do not get carried over after a session. Yes, this is a very good point. A lot of bills um, that bring meaningful reform don't actually go through because they uh, run out of time. Um, yeah, I started a sentence by writing a six week, but I, I, I don't know what that could possibly mean. So I think a, um, yeah, six weeks for something. Uh, permanent standing committees, public bill committees, make them less ad hoc uh, and more specialized committees. Electoral reform, should we have proportional representation? Does uh, English votes for English laws work? Greater devolution? We don't know. Elected second chamber, yes. Do we reform, replace, retain, or remove? All of the above. Uh, <laughs> uh, role of the MPs, often characterized as lobby fodder uh, by journalists and disgruntled backbenchers, but do serve a number of important functions. Uh, representative. CCCP depends upon who they represent. First past the post means that you might not be represented. Um, again, you can have a, uh, you, you, as we saw um, in a borough of Hartsmere, uh, you know, with 42% of the vote, um, sorry, I'm thinking of Linda Jack, someone Jack, Glenda Jackson had 42% of the vote, uh, in her constituency and ended up becoming the MP. So again, you might not represent everybody. Um, social media improves scrutiny by, um, you know, by, by the voice of the people. Uh, an example being this, uh, yeah, it's easier to set up demonstrations and also gives power to backbench uh, backbenchers. An example drawn from our neighbors across the pond um, in the U.S. AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is has a big social media presence and following, hence has a lot more power, even though she's the equivalent of a backbencher. Vote on bills, debate as uh, so a legislator or as another role of the MP. They vote on bills, debate, scrutinize, and uh, they stand on standing committees. Uh, or also sit on standing committees. Um, yeah. Redressers of grievances. Labor MP Sarah Champion um, fought for her constituency, introducing legislation to address a sex scandal in her region, and she won. Scrutinizer, uh, DSCs, careerist, climbing, climbing the greasy pole. Um, yes. Why? Because, um, you know, the profit incentive and, like, capitalism and stuff. Uh, legitimizer MPs can land support on legislation. Um, just a couple of facts, statistics that um, talk about diversity in the uh, parliament is that 23% of MPs went to Oxbridge, 52% of MPs are over 50, 8% of MPs are from minority backgrounds, and the highest number of female MPs ever elected is 208. Uh, keep in mind, this is out of 650. Um, yes. So we talked a lot about uh, the House of Commons. Now let's uh, move on and uh, touch a little bit on the House of Lords. So there's different types of members of the House of Lords. Uh, they're all Lords, and uh, they're in this big chamber referred to as the House of Lords. Uh, hereditary peers. A member 
of the House of Lords, who since uh, 1999 has been selected from those who uh, inherited their title. Life peers, a member of the House of Lords who has been appointed to the chamber for their lifetime, and a peer is just a member of the House of Lords. Um, yeah. Okay, so what are the comparative powers of the Commons and the Lords? Uh, so kind of comparing the two chambers to each other. Well, the right to insist on legislation in case of conflict over legislation, the Lords should ultimately give way to the Commons. Financial privilege, Lords cannot delay or amend money bills. A money bill is anything that, oh, um, a money bill is anything that relates to a taxation or government budget. Power to dismiss the executive. If government is defeated on a motion of no confidence, it must resign. The Salisbury, com um, the Salisbury Doctrine means that bills implementing manifesto commitments are not opposed by the Lords. Reasonable time means that the Lords should consider government business within a reasonable time. And secondary legislation, Lords do not usually object to secondary legislation, meaning that when uh, if they refuse something and it goes back to them after it's been amended, they should uh, can go with it. Um, okay, so uh, yes, the Salisbury Doctrine uh, is what I talked about, um, and yeah, so if if the government is defeated on a um, supply motion, which is about supply meaning uh, kind of money bills um, and and things um, of such, and if they're defeated on a, a kind of budget motion it is by um, convention that they should resign um okay so what would happen with the more assertive uh house of lords well you know the government is most likely to give ground when its own peers um when its own peers rebel or abstain so if they were more assertive this would increase legitimacy uh because the reform lords is more confident of its legitimacy and more willing to flex its muscles on legal and constitutional issues we saw this um, lately with the twenty uh, with the twenty sixteen uh, uh, EU withdrawal bill, which was defeated seventeen times by the House of Lords uh, by October twenty eighteen. Uh, government mandates peers have questioned whether the Salisbury Doctrine should apply in periods of coalition, or when the government party wins the support of less than a third of the electorate. Support from MPs, Lords have been most effective in forcing the government to amend its proposals when MPs, particularly backbenchers from the governing party, support their amends. Uh, debates about relative powers, input legitimacy concerns the composition of institution and its responsiveness to citizens' concerns. Uh, okay, I'm ending that sentence there because it doesn't seem terribly uh, important. Okay, uh, next up, let's talk a bit about committees. There's plenty of committees, namely the select committees, um, and they have plenty of things. So are the select committees effective in scrutinizing the executive? Select committees scrutinize the policies and actions of government, in, uh, conducting detailed examinations of controversial issues. The key, they question ministers, civil servants, servants, outside experts, and request access to government papers. Many select committees... Recommendations are accepted by government. Again, we mentioned that number, 44%. Uh, the election of chairs and members by MPs has enhanced the independence of um, select committees. No. Uh, the counter-argument is that government with a majority in the Commons will also have a majority in the committees. Yes, because it is a microcosm of the House of Commons. 
Ministers and servants may not provide much information when questioned, and access to documents may be denied. They have no power to propose policy. Governments can ignore recommendations made by select committees. Some members do not attend regularly. Some may be abrasive when questioning the witnesses. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, has backbench has the backbench business committee been a success? The BBBC. Uh, yes, it's given backbench MPs a greater say over parliamentary timetable. It's enabled debate uh, and raised profile of issues that would otherwise not be discussed. Debates initiated by the BBBC. Um, have influenced government policy, including those on reducing fuel and beer duty. Uh, it was successful. Uh, it was a successful vehicle for public engagement within Parliament, allocating time for debate on the topics, receiving a hundred thousand signatures in an e-petition. No counter argument being uh, that the government does not have to respond to or accept motions passed uh, after debates scheduled by the BBBC. The government allocates time for the BBBC. <laughs> Uh, debates and short notice uh, and in an ad hoc way. The government ignores criticisms from the Backbench Business Committee and forced through changes which uh, give party groups greater say in election of Backbench Business Committee members. Small Smaller parties are underrepresented. Seven BBBC members uh, are conservative or labor, the other being from the SNP. Uh, okay. So, this, so what is the distinguishment between a delegate model and a trustee model? Delegates are given clear instructions on how they are to act on behalf of the people when they represent. Trustees should take into account the interests uh, of, of, uh, and values of the group they represent, but are not bound to constrict uh, instructions from them. Again, as we can see uh, in like, modern times, you know, a trustee model is something that's a bit closer to what uh, we have at the moment. So, is Parliament an effective check on power on the executive? Yes, the executive's control over Parliament's timetable has been weakened by the creation of backbench business committees and the greater use of urgent questions. Backbench MPs provide greater checks on government policy than in the past, with increased incidence of rebellion uh, uh, constraint on government actions. The reformed House Lords, in which no party has a majority, is more effective reversing, uh, a more effective revising chamber. Amendments made in the Lords often force the government to rethink legislation. Yes, this is true. Select committees have become more influential within governments, with governments uh, accepting around 44% of their recommendations. The election of select committee chairs and members has enhanced, has enhanced their independence. Uh, a counter-argument being that the executive exercises significant control over legislative timetable and MPs hoping to steer legislation through Parliament face significant obstacles. Again, only 20 days are awarded to the opposition. Uh, government debates are uh, defeats are rare. Most backbench MPs from the governing party obey the whip on a majority of votes. We see this again with climbing the greasy pole, uh, which is a thing. Government uh, is usually able to overturn hostile amendments made by the House of Lords, and can resort to the Parliamentary Act to bypass opposition in the Lords. Um, select committees have little power. The government is not required to accept their recommendations and often ignores the proposals uh, which run counter to their proposed policy. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this kind of completes us on the first part of the paper two. Mainly, we have covered 
constitution, a bit of devolution, and parliament. Next episode, uh, or next podcast, uh, we'll be covering the, M- uh, the, sorry, the prime minister and the cabinet and the, and the supreme court. All right, that has been enough for me today, uh, and good luck on your exams.